Hello. Guys, how was your 4th of July? Was it easy? Yeah, um, my daughter and I tried to go watch fireworks. I think it was Sunday night. And we went to Medina because there was a rumor that there was going to be food trucks and like live music and it sounded really fun and cool. And I was like, this is what my 20 year old will love. And we got there, two things. I have to tell you two stories. Number one, there was a lobster truck there. And I was like, a lobster truck in Bonita? Could be great or could be terrible. I don't know, we're gonna figure it out. So I went and um, they had this like fancy blue lemonade. I was like, blue lemonade? Yanni was like, blue lemonade, we're gonna get it. It was $5 a cup, okay? The cup was big, to be fair. And we were like, this must be some like fancy, homemade, hand squeeze. So we buy two lemonades. I spent $10 on this. And we're standing to the side, and I can see in the window of the food truck, she's pulling up a nice two liter of blue something something, brisky something lemonade, and pouring it into a cup. And I said, I just spent $10 on a $1 two liter cup of fake lemonade. Oh, I was so burnt. That's fine. It's fine. Live and learn, right? And then I was like, we were standing there drinking our fake lemonades and thinking about what food truck we wanted to go to. And I saw, like, across the field, I was like, wow, that's a dark cloud. Yep. Five minutes later, the sky opened, and, like, the flood of Noah fell on us. And everybody was running back. There was a lot of people out there, and everyone was running back to their cars. We were drenched. So that's my fireworks story. I hope that you guys had a more <laughs> peaceful and chill and less expensive 4th of July. <laughs> um, tonight, we're talking about something that's like a little weird to talk about. It's kind of um, uncomfortable maybe, but we're in that space where we've been talking about identity and insecurities and the things that go with it. And this is something that I think we really have to talk about because all of us deal with it at some level. And so tonight we're talking about the doctrine of sin. Yay! All right, cool. I'm glad you guys are with me. Um, but really not just sin, but what is sin? Where does it come from? How does it affect us? I feel like sin is this like cloudy kind of like kind of like the stars, right? Like we know they exist. They're there. We all can agree that it's there. We, it, we you know. But does it affect us every day? Do we deal with it every day? I feel like especially in like you know 2023 America, it, it feels very much like the sin dial has been turned down, where we just don't understand it, acknowledge it, want to deal with it, want to talk about it, even in church. It feels too maybe Baptist-y or old, like, 1950s, maybe. Um, but it's not a 1950s concept. It's a spiritual concept. It's a reality. And so we're going to talk about it. But I want to tell you guys about my yoga class first. So I'm 44, almost 45. Yay! Um, and Andrew and I, Andrew Hunt and I, were actually talking about this today. Like, when you hit 40, for those of you guys who are there with me, something really changes in your body. Like all of a sudden, the things that you could do with no problem in your 20s and 30s are now not so great. And like immediately you feel it. And so I carry a lot of tension in my neck and shoulders, all my stress in my back. And so I've been going to this little yoga class at this place called Live Move on Timberlake to help, help me stay alive, <laughs> help me function, help me walk. And it helps me to move better, but there's this one pose that's really, really difficult. It's called like Warrior Three or something. And you like, you stand on one leg, and then you put your other leg back behind you in the air, and then you bring it forward very slowly and up to the front. So it's weird, like a penguin pose, or not a penguin, a flamingo pose, kind of. And um, yeah, it's very difficult. And the, the instructor often says, like, pick one spot on the floor and look at it. Just pick one spot, 
and just like focus there and that will help you keep your balance. And it does, you guys. I've noticed, like, not just me, but like my other friends in the class too, because sometimes I look around to like see how, in the scale of one to terrible, am I like at terrible with everybody else or am I like doing okay? Um, but yeah, so when we're staring at like one point on the floor, it really does help your mind and your body to kind of sync up and be in focus. And sometimes, sometimes I'm able to do the whole like flamingo thing without falling over, sometimes. Um, but the visual system, I looked it up, the vi our eye system provides input to our brain and it's the dominant system that provides cues for maintaining balance. So it's actually a real like scientific thing. If you focus on a point, it helps you to keep your balance no matter what you're doing. And so what about like archery? Because I had another question about like what we look at. Like archery, if an archer is pulling back his bow and arrow or her bow and arrow, they want to look at the thing that they're shooting at. They don't want to look at the arrow. They don't want to look over there at the bird. Because if they are looking somewhere other than the target, that's where their arrow is going to go. Isn't that weird? So like even if you're like, you think you're focusing at the, at the target, but you're looking over here, your arrow is going to land somewhere over there. It's a super weird phenomenon. The same with golf. Golfers say like, don't ever look at the ball, don't look at your club, don't look at like whatever, look at what you want your, your golf ball to go to and wh that's where you will hit the ball to, that's where your aim will send it. So if your eyes are focused on the wrong thing, you hit the wrong target. And the point of all of this is that we have to see correctly, to aim correctly, to move correctly, to balance correctly, physically, right? But also spiritually. And I really want to pull back some of the cloudiness away from this topic of sin. And I want us to look at it correctly and have like good doctrine, a good understanding of what we're talking about. Because I think a lot of our questions and stumbling blocks and things that we deal with, just when we don't see it correctly, it makes it easy for us to fall into to sin. And maybe if you guys come from a church that's taught this really in a weird kind of way or a controlling kind of way, or you have some woundedness or some baggage around it. So I want to just encourage you, if that's true, um, don't be afraid. We're not here to control anybody. We just want to have clarity. Or if you come from a church that maybe didn't talk about it at all, or if you didn't come from church, and it feels like a weird, culty kind of word, even maybe like skin, what's that? Um, I want you to encourage, encourage you to lean in tonight. So the first fill in the blank at your note sheet is that what we look at affects where we go. And then I want to define what the word sin means because again, it's kind of like a weird churchy word and what does that even mean? I think the most basic definition is that sin is rebellion against God. What I think is really interesting is that the enemy wants us to think that sin is no big deal. Like, that is his goal. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's what he did. It's what he does now, is he tries to whisper to us, eh, it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. Did God say that? But the reality of sin is this. Romans 6.23 says something very important. It says, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So well, the first thing I want you guys to understand is that sin always results in death. 
always. Physical death, for sure, but emotional and spiritual deaths as well, of many different kinds. When we don't have a right view of sin and its effects on the world, we can blame God for what we see and what we experience because we think, oh, you know, this is God's fault. He's in control. He's done this. He's done that. But we blame God for what sin has done to the world and what our sin does to the world. And I want to explore that and unwrap that a little bit further. So Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Hear you, right? Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and then death came as a result of sin. And I think, you know, we, we live in a world that suffers. We live in a world where people pass away. We live in a world where there's disease and war and famine and sexual trauma and pride and weeping and sorrow. And we look at the world that's broken and we want to blame God for the effects of sin. But it's not what God had in mind for us at the beginning. It's not what he wants for us now. But because our great-grandparents, great-great-greats, all the way great, back to the beginning, they fell into rebellion against God because they did that, it entered the world for all of us. And the, one of the very first lies that the enemy told was that it wouldn't happen. If we look at Genesis 3, verses 2 through 5, this is what it says. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the lie that the, that the serpent is telling Eve right there? there? It'll be fine. If God says sin is going to cause you to die, it, it won't. It won't. But it did, and it does. The wages of sin is death. One of the things I think about on a regular basis is that for those who don't belong to Jesus, this world is the closest thing that they will ever get to heaven, which is terrible. Because this world has its wars and its crime and its violence and its famines and its problems, and this is the best it ever gets. That's what sin has done. That's what the serpent lied to Eve about. And she bought it. She ate the fruit. She rebelled against God. She desired to know better than the Lord. She didn't believe that he was good. And so they died. They died a spiritual death, and then later on they died a physical death. And now we also have a life cycle because of them. And humanity is not the only part of creation that suffers. Because of our rebellion against God, all of creation suffers. Animals suffer. The physical, actual world is suffering. Romans 8, 19 through 22 says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of the Lord. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So what is Romans saying right there? What is Paul saying? He's saying that Remember in, in Genesis, God put Adam in charge of what? Everything, right? God made the world, and then he put Adam in charge of it, and he said, you're in charge. And Adam decided, 
I'm going to go do the bad thing. And so not only did he take himself and Eve to curse self, not only did they take humanity with them into the chaos of sin, they also took the world with them. And that's something we don't often think about, but that's what Romans says, is that creation itself is waiting for our salvation, our redemption, and for Jesus to come back and make all things new. So creation experiences death as well. I had a conversation today in the kitchen. We were making lunch, and we were talking about uh, bugs. And I have a very strong theory that there are certain bugs that God did not create. They came as part of the fall, like mosquitoes, cockroaches, certain other things that have no purpose in the world, really, except to cause problems. That's my theory. And I think it's part of the groaning of creation. That's not Bible, guys. It's just my, my theory. <laughs> but the reality is, is that the serpent lied. And he's still telling that same lie. And we're still buying it. He's telling this lie that sin is no big deal. That we can play around with it. We can dip our toe in it. We can engage with it. And we're going to be okay. It's God trying to keep us from something we deserve. Is God not being good to us? So go ahead, says the serpent. Reach out your hand and disobey him. And everything we experience now, our broken relationships, our sorrows, our diseases, are simply a result of sin breaking the world. And it's not a faraway concept. It's near, and it's close, and it affects us every day. Sin keeps us from goodness and from God. And the truth is, without the death and resurrection of Christ, we have no way to save ourselves. No way to get off of this planet that's also falling into decay. No way to get around the spinning and dying world. And it's so important, guys. Like, I don't want to just sit up here and say churchy words at you. Like, I really want you to grasp that you need to understand the glory and the depth of our salvation. It's not just a lifestyle that we live. We don't just go to church because that's the good thing to do. It's the salvation of our souls. It's the hope of the world. And we need to have a correct view of our lostness in order to understand how great our salvation is. C.S. Lewis, there's a quote in your notes page. He said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go and make new mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is offered by the holiday at the sea. Imagine if you walked up to a child in the streets, in the projects, in somewhere in South America, in the dirt, and you said, hey, get out of that mud puddle. Let's go to the beach. And the kid said, I'm going to stick with the mud puddle. Right? That's what we do. That's what we do. We choose the mud puddles because we don't believe that God is good and he has good things for us. And then we blame God for the mud that we're sitting in. So that's like a big, broad view of what sin is and how it affects us and what happens to us before Jesus. So here is my question then. What happens when we lift our heads up as Christ followers and we realize we're sitting in the mud? How do we get out? Right? Because there's also a fable in churches that goes like this. You become a Christian and everything in your life gets better. Right? You become a Christian, all of a sudden your problems are solved. How many of that 
of you guys would say that that has been true in your life as Christ followers? Yeah. <laughs> Let's be real, right? It's not true. It's not true. Becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't solve all your problems. It's not meant to solve all our problems. How we receive our salvation and how we walk it out is a gift that the Lord takes us step by step through and piece by piece through and slowly we go from, the psalm says, from glory to glory as we travel. It's a slow change. It's an immediate change, but it's also a slow and gradual change. He doesn't pull us out of this dead and dying world. He leaves us in it. And part of that, I think, is because he uses it to change us, to look more like him, and then to offer a hand to the rest of the people who are, who are sitting in the mud puddles. So if we're Christ followers and we feel stuck in cycles of temptation and sin, what do we do with that? Again, we're going to go into some real boring doctrine, guys. Here we go. You ready? We have what's called the old nature and the new nature. When we become a follower of Jesus, we get the Holy Spirit and we get a new self. We get a new creation. But that new creation is tiny baby. It has to grow just like a baby grows. And in the meantime, we have this old self that we're born with, our human nature that we get from good old Adam and Eve, the one that wants to rebel against God, the one that wants to fall into the temptations, and that's already full grown. She's already raging, right? So this new baby crystal has to grow, and the old, full grown, raging crystal has to die. And the two things go fully like this, but they don't go like this immediately. The scriptures call it the flesh. We still have desires and tendencies that are born out of our heritage from Adam and Eve. And they're things that Jesus said that we have to die to ourselves in order to put away. And dying, again, is not something we want to talk about. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. It doesn't feel good. But when we are willing to literally die to the old way that we used to do things, the old thought patterns, the old desires, the old coping mechanisms, the old things that we used to go to make ourselves feel better, that gives the opportunity for the new and the spirit-led and the spirit-driven to rise up and truly change us from the inside out. Paul says in Romans that the spirit and the flesh are in conflict with each other, that they're going like this all the time. So again, how comfortable does that feel to have like basically a split personality, right? Just doing this all the time. It's not comfortable. It's not, it's not meant to be. There's not meant to be an, a nice, comfy, slow death of the old self. It needs to go down, and we need to be intentional about putting it to death. But sometimes we get stuck. I don't know about you guys. Sometimes when I'm trying to balance on my one leg in yoga, my eyes move around because I'm looking at everybody else trying to gauge how I'm doing, and I fall over. That's what happens. Sometimes the mud we're sitting in is sticky, and we can't get our feet out of it. Sometimes the chains of our flesh are heavy and the enemy is right there and he's saying, eh, sit back down in the mud, the beaches and all that. And we believe him. This is the number one problem, I think, for Christ followers is that we believe the enemy. It was the number one problem for Adam and Eve and it's the number one problem for us. Freedom is our inheritance in Christ. The new life is our inheritance in Christ. We are made and meant for freedom from sin. We are made to be like our Father, made to be like our Savior. We are made to get rid of the chains. 
So the first step is just to acknowledge, how do we get out? How do we get out? The first step is to acknowledge the reality of what sin is. Stop agreeing with the enemy that sin is okay and chill. It is not. It is not okay. It is not chill. It, is, it wants to ruin you. So we acknowledge the reality that it brings death. We stop covering our eyes, stop walking blindly into it, stop making excuses for our rebellions against the Lord. And the second step is repentance. Repentance doesn't just mean to feel sorry for what we've done. Repentance means to change direction. It's not a feeling, it's a choice, it's a behavior. I've had the opportunity a few times to go to one of our local AA meetings and um, sit in there and learn just as like a support person. And I love going to AA, you guys. Like literally, it is the most encouraging time. And I like their 12 steps because they make it simple. They're on the back, on the front and the back of your pages. We're gonna do something right now. There's an, an exercise I'd like to invite you guys into. There, I put nine of the 12 steps on your notes page. And then on the back is Romans 6, and then there's a T-chart at the bottom. I would like you guys to take some time and read through at your tables the, 12, the nine steps of the 12, and then Romans 6, and see where you can find parallels. The 12 steps are about repentance, and they are a great way to look at and see a practical way to walk through change. And then Romans 6 invites us into the same thing. So I just want to see what you guys find, and then in about... 15 minutes, I'll come back up and ask you how it went. It's super true. Oh, sorry. So she was saying that number two and three um, correlate with the idea of belief in God in Romans 6. That faith and two and three in the list, they really have a lot to do with, am I saying this right? A lot to do with um, believing that God is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. Anything else, guys? Yeah, that's really good. Um, she was saying, sharing that number three, making a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God goes along with being a slave to righteousness in Romans 6. Taking that, taking ourselves off of the driver's seat and letting God take over, right? At my table, we were talking a little bit about control and how, um, you know, I think we like to believe that we are in control and then something happens and reminds us that actually we have no control and that as human beings, we're going to serve something. We're going to serve something, whether it's the lives of the enemy, our own desires, the world. You know, for some people, that looks like ambition or money or um, relationships or whatever. Or we're going to serve the Lord. And the two things do have different outcomes. So there's one more step, guys. So we've talked about like the reality of sin, right? And then we talked about repentance just now. And then the third is, I think, the part that just correlates so much with where we're fixing our eyes. Because the truth is, I don't want you guys to fix your eyes on your sin. Because remember what we said at the beginning? Wherever the archer is looking at to send the arrow is where it's going to go. And there's nothing really encouraging about fixing your eyes on your sin. That can lead to a lot of like unfortunate places. It can lead to 
sadness, it can lead to sorrow, it can lead to depression, it can lead to discouragement. We don't need to acknowledge the reality of it, but we don't need to focus on it. And this is why. Because in Romans 6, it says, count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. It doesn't say, count yourselves dead to sin, period. Good luck with that. Move forward. It says, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Christ. And in what we've been talking about in the big room on Sunday mornings, that what? Sin plus grace plus what? Nothing equals our acceptance and our salvation. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we offer ourselves to him as those who have been brought from death to life and as an instrument of righteousness. That sounds so cool. I want to be an instrument of righteousness. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like something I want to be. That sounds like something I want to fix my eyes on. That's where I want to aim my life. And then what happens as we're becoming those instruments of righteousness, as those little babies of new creations are growing and maturing and becoming, what happens if we do fall into sin, if we do get stuck in something from our old nature and our flesh? We don't stop. We don't sit down in the mud and agree with the enemy. We repent. We receive that grace that's given to us by the Lord, and we get back up. Because here's what's true. There is no account held against us as followers of Christ by God. There's no account. God does not look at you when you screw up and say, oh, you screwed up again. Back of the line. He doesn't say that. He says, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me with confidence to the throne of grace to receive help when you need it. He doesn't say, oh, sorry, that's the third time you've watched porn this week. Sorry, that's the fourth time you've texted that ex that you shouldn't have texted. Sorry. That's the sixth time you yelled at your kid today, right? We all have that thing that we struggle with. And the Lord's invitation is open to us, not in a condemning way, not in like a fix yourself and then come to me. No, he says, come to me and I'm going to fix you. You're already whole and we're going to work out that wholeness as you grow. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus and believe that we have no account held against us. The enemy wants to be in our ear. Remember at the beginning, he said, you're not going to die. God's not good. He wants to keep stuff from you. He's just right there, just as ready when you screw it up. to say, aha, you screwed up, sucker. Like, that's it for you. And we need to stop agreeing with him on both accounts. We agree with the Lord who says, come to me and get up and you're made new. That's who we agree with. Grace means that death does not have the final answer for us. Jesus means that death is not the final answer. We experience it in our physical bodies. We will not experience it in our souls. And these physical bodies, this is the promise for us. These physical bodies are gonna be remade, renewed, and we're gonna see each other again. And that feels like really far away, right? It feels really far away and not right here and right now, especially when we have friends and neighbors who are dealing with difficult things but it's the hope that we have to hold on to. 
Because this is not, this world, this dying world broken by sin is not where we want to fix our eyes. It's not what we want to hold out to people as the hope. So to keep our balance and our aim and our direction true, if you fall into a place of sin, if you find yourself stuck, reality, repentance, and fix your eyes on Jesus and don't take them off of him because we, our identity, is that we are no longer slaves to sin. We have a choice. We have freedom and we offer ourselves to God. So for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to share a story with you guys. This is Siomara's testimony. Some of you guys may have seen it before. Siomara is a, prostitute, is a former prostitute from Nicaragua. Um, I met her several years ago when I was down there. She was working in the brothels when a missionary from New Zealand um, came and witnessed to her. And I love Siomara's story for a lot of reasons. You're not going to hear this in the video because they condensed her story. It took her about two hours to share it with us. Um, and you guys are going to see five minutes of it. But what is really important, and what I want you guys to think about when you hear her story, is that she was saved, and then like many women in trafficking or sex work do, she went back to the brothels a few times before she eventually was able to get all the way out. And God never left her not one time. And now what she's doing as she's grown her faith, as she's grown that small new creation up, is she's the one out in the brothels evangelizing and inviting people to know who Jesus is. And her life is not super awesome, guys. She's, she deals with a lot of illnesses. But the thing I can say about Siomara is that even in her illness, she keeps her eyes fixed on Jesus, and she never stops believing in who he says she is. So after that, I'm, after the video is shown, we're going to invite Kate and Mike Justice to come up. They're going to lead us in some worship, because I want to end tonight, you guys, like verbalizing and declaring the truth over ourselves and singing and praising and worship. Remember that we said last time that praise and worship is one of the ways that we have to fight the enemy, right? So we're going to fight a little bit tonight. We're going to remind ourselves who we are. So as Kate and Mike come up after the video, um, I'm just going to invite us to stand with them. I'm going to invite us to sing. I know we're a small little group, but it's so important, guys, to say the words out loud. Okay? So enjoy the video. 